Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is Scott Gates. He has worked as a writer and editor in Colorado, Virginia, and North Carolina. His first novel, Hard Road South, was a finalist in the debut author category of the Feathered Quill Book Awards, and his short fiction has been nominated for the Pushcart Prize. His new novel is Gone, The Redeemer, which is published by our friends at Blue Ink Press. Scott, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Jason. Great to be here. It is an honor to have you here. So Scott, I was turned on to this book by my friend Dave Lucy, one of the owners of Page 158 Books in Wake Forest, North Carolina, along with his wife, Sue. But can you please tell me, Scott, how you got hooked up with Dave and what he and Sue and Page 158 have done for your literary career since? Certainly. I'm happy to answer that question. That's a good one out of the gate. So I, uh, Hard Road South, my, my first novel was published in 2020. As you mentioned, my Blue Ink Press, it's an independent publisher out of Raleigh, and they have had a relationship with uh, page 158 in Wake Forest for years, so I just happened to benefit from that relationship. Now, mm -hmm. that's not to say, you know, I was definitely familiar with page 158, and for that matter, you guys, just in being a local, right? I'm in Wake Forest, mm -hmm. so I'd given them plenty of business before. Um, mm -hmm. but I'd never met Dave and Sue, or if I had, I hadn't really put it together that they were the owners. So mm -hmm. once I was signed on with Blue Ink, they kind of made that official introduction. And then, mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, they read the book Hard Road South and they liked it and really have been just amazingly supportive from there. Um, they've hosted launch events for me one virtual in 2020, but then uh, more recently, we were happy to do one in person. Um, and they have connected me to readers and book clubs and other authors, which is huge. And from that, I've seen more connections being made. Like I will talk to other authors that I've met and they have the same thing. They're like, oh, Sue put me in touch with so-and-so and we write in the same genre. And I never, you know, so it's just, I feel like in addition to being this great community resource in Wake Forest. They're also this amazing resource for writers and readers. Um, just kind of making those connections that might not other that might otherwise be missed. So uh, I can't say yeah. enough good things about them. Yeah, me neither. They're very good people and I'm happy to give them a plug whenever I can. Thank you, Dave and Stu. Um, Scott, I would now like to ask you to take a moment, please, and set your novel, Go on the Redeemer, up for our listeners. Sure. So Gone the Redeemer. I mentioned Hard Road South. That's That was just briefly, that was uh, set in Reconstruction Era Virginia. So that's after the Civil War. So Gone the Redeemer is not a sequel, but it's in the same world. There's a carryover character for those paying attention. But it is uh, the, it's set in 1898. So it's the story of a somewhat accidental volunteer for the Spanish-American War um, who decides... Um, it's time to get home. He doesn't see it into the war in sight. His wife is in California expecting their first child and the clock's ticking. So um, he decides to take it in his own hands and he 
gets off the front line and has to figure out how to get from Cuba to California mm-hmm. in about six months because he wants to make it home for the, the birth of his child. So this mm-hmm. puts him traversing the American West of the late 1800s, which is an interesting world in itself. And that's kind of what drew me to want to tell this story. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Scott. Um, your book, this book opens with a sunset. Um, and even though a sunset is a normal everyday occurrence, sunsets still hold a ton of power over people. How, Scott, do these everyday things like sunsets, when meditated upon, have the power to t- change the trajectory of a person's life? Yeah, good question. So, in this case, Thomas, the main character who I mentioned, um, and it's written in first person, so you get everything from Thomas's perspective. But as he says it, he doesn't normally notice sunsets. And, um, you know, whether or not he's just inside when the sun's going down or if he's in a, you know, he's in the woods or whatever, he just doesn't typically take note of sunsets. But for whatever reason, he's sitting there in the trench and this one grabs his attention. And, you know, he starts reflecting on it. It's setting over the, over the ocean in the West and it clicks in his mind. That's where he belongs. That's he, you know, back West, back with his wife. Um, it's, it's just kind of a powerful, pure image for him to take him outside of that current world that he was in. He's in the trenches in Cuba. Conditions were not great. I, you know, there were as many or more casualties from disease in the Spanish-American War than there were from actual fighting. So he's surrounded by, you know, sick comrades and sleeping in a trench. So that kind of elevates him almost out of his situation and kind of snaps him out of it, you know, to where he realizes that he needs to take some action. So, you know, from my own personal take on that question, I... I think it's important and I'm finding it more so now everybody's busy. I have, I have three young kids. Um, it's easy to just keep on going from task to task without stopping to reflect on those little things, right. That make life rich. So, um, you know, that may be one reason why I saw a sunset as an appropriate way to spur some action in him. Um, but, um, also I think since I was in Northern Virginia about six years ago, since moving down to North Carolina, I have tried to be be more mindful of those sorts of things, you know, to kind of stop and I'm not going to say smell the roses, but, you know, (laughs) just slow down and take it, take your surroundings in and point something out to the kids like a sunset or something that might be interesting and, you know, just make time for all that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. And, um, you know, it's easy to um, not be aware of things like that, especially when everybody's walking around, uh, looking at their phones, etc. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of walking around, looking at their phones and short attention spans, things of that nature. um, Not a lot of people, Scott, are familiar with history in 2022. Um, We recently interviewed a gentleman whose grandparents were um, 
were victims of the Holocaust. And, um, you know, there was a study that came out recently that a lot of folks who are um, younger than millennials are unfamiliar with Holocaust history. Um, as such, I suspect that there are a lot of folks out there who are unfamiliar with the situation in Cuba uh, at the beginning of your novel. What, Scott, was the situation in Cuba and why was the military there? Uh, the short of it is, so why were we in Cuba in the Spanish-American War? It was mainly yes. a conflict between, as it said, Spanish and American, Spain and the United States. So Spain, mm -hmm. uh, Cuba was a uh, Spanish colony, essentially. And so it was, you know, the, the closest point of land to the United States. There was um, mm -hmm. an incident, you might have, hear the term, remember the main from mm -hmm. uh, high school history. So mm -hmm. the... USS Maine uh, exploded in Havana in the harbor there, and that kind of uh, triggered the intervention here in what was the Cuban War for Independence. So um, we were, uh, in this case, we were supporting the Cubans, and so the Cubans mm -hmm. were actually helping to advance the line for the United States, kind of pushing back against the Spanish there. So that's mm -hmm. the short of it. it. It's a it was a complicated conflict. It didn't last very long. But um, mm -hmm. it was something that I was interested in learning a little bit more of. And, you know, it takes pretty much the first chapter of the book deals with the war. And then we're following Thomas. We're getting out of there. So, um, you know, we move on. But it did take some research, some heavy research up front just to, to kind of get my bearings and, and uh, you know, accurately portray what Thomas might have been experiencing down there. Yeah, absolutely. And um, as you well know, that's the best way to learn about something is to decide to write about it because you got to do all kinds of research. And listeners, if you're unfamiliar with Cuban history, I recommend you looking into this period through um, the Cuban Missile Crisis and um, everything in between. Well, thank you so much, Scott. Listeners, we're going to take a short break here for a word from our sponsors, and then I will be right back with Scott Gates. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Scott Gates, author of Gone, the Redeemer, which is published by our friends at Blue Ink Press. Scott, before the break, we were talking about Cuba. I think a lot of listeners of this podcast, a lot of deep readers, uh, would immediately think of Ernest Hemingway when thinking of Cuba. Uh, was Hemingway an inspiration for you or um, any other uh, literary insp inspirations, Cuban or otherwise? Um, Hemingway, you know, I've, I've, I've read a bit of his work, but not too much. I would say, um, I've probably, if I'm trying to borrow from somebody or if, if anybody inspired me to start writing a long form, I'd say it was John Steinbeck. 
nice. talking about another kind of classic American author. So um, Steinbeck in when I read Grapes of Wrath outside of for a high school English class, you know, when I actually sat down and read it on my own to process it, I think what most struck me of that um, was the final scene. And I won't give anything away, but the fact mm-hmm. that the final scene is he took the reader on this journey to get to a point that's just this this um instance a moment between two people that would it's kind of like how on earth would that ever happen between two strangers but the arc that he carries the reader on you get there and it's like oh of course it's this moment of compassion between two individuals who don't know each other uh so in in my mind i was like wow that is um that's an impressive use of the craft. So I kind of, you know, it it kind of inspired me to try to do that myself to maybe I have the end scene in mind of a book and sometimes that changes, but you know, as I'm writing it, I know that last scene. So it's like, how do we get there? Or it might evolve as I go, like I said. So, um, you know, as the characters develop, you tweak things, but I do like to have some kind of surprise where if you're just to read the last page on its own you're like oh what what's going on there but you know as you're bringing the reader to it naturally through the events of the book everything just clicks yeah i love grapes of wrath i personally am partial to uh east of eden um okay yeah so east of eden that one i think what my takeaway from that that's another one that i love is um the sense of place right He's mm-hmm. and and you know it's been said that he the Salinas Valley I believe in California is almost a character in itself. So it's made me more mindful of describing surroundings and setting scenes and getting things right when I'm talking about a landscape based on kind of what he did there. Yeah, and um, you know I don't think that you were running the risk of spoiling Grapes of Wrath for anyone. And if you were <laughs> uh, listeners. That was a bit of a spoiler for you. Please go read um, The Grapes of Wrath. And not to digress too far, Scott, but I have to say I was a bookseller, um, you know, gosh, maybe this may have been like 15 years ago or so at this juncture when uh, Oprah made East of Eden an Oprah book club pick. And I have to say, uh, one of her greatest accomplishments, I think, amongst many, I'm sure, is that she put um, East of Eden and like a four um volume Faulkner box set on the bestseller list I mean not a whole lot of people have the power to do that and yeah Carmen, uh, you know um, that's excellent that was a really great when she was turning people onto the classics well um Scott I now want to ask you about literary technique uh, you have a paragraph inserted towards the beginning of your novel that reads quote I so wanted to be home to write what I'd wronged I'll get to that part of course for now, let's just say there's a girl, and I didn't necessarily do right by her, end quote. Scott, I'm hoping you can talk about this paragraph, what function it serves, and why you inserted it into the narrative in the way that you did. Right. Thanks for that. So as I said, so it's told from Thomas's perspective. I took a little different approach, too, in this book because I wanted uh, Hard Road South is... Um, it was a difficult time that people were living in. And it's just, so it's a tale of some rural farming communities dealing with some tough issues, right? So in it, it, you know, in writing Gone the Redeemer, I wanted to lighten things up a little bit and bad things happen and there's bad people in there. Don't get me wrong, but it definitely is faster paced. And in that this is, this was interesting to me 
in that it's written in first person, I feel like I was able to take some liberties with how I would otherwise write because this is in Thomas's voice. So, you know, I've come to realize Thomas is probably a better writer than I am. But in this case, I thought um, I wanted to reveal slowly the full scope of the the mess he's made, <laughs> you know? So at this point, uh, because he's also probably a little hesitant to reveal fully what a mess he's made. Uh, so I do want to indicate, you know, why is he, why all of a sudden is he going to leave the Cuban front, like take this huge risk, leave Cuba. This is nuts. Like that was a big challenge in itself for me was how are you going to actually physically leave Cuba in a war, but uh, with the blockade anyway, he pulls it off. And so, yeah, th this was just kind of a little something to, um, help the readers understand what what's why this is happening right um and more is revealed really through dialogue with other characters as he's kind of telling his own story to them so um it's not mm -hmm. often that he's revealing things about his past directly in his own storytelling like that it happens but a lot of times other characters have to pull it out of them mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, speaking of uh, lightening things up, um, there is a blurb on the back of your book that says that the plot is so electric uh, that the blurber couldn't stop turning the pages. Now, when I read this um, after I had started the book, I initially read it as a plot so eccentric that couldn't stop turning the pages. Um, your narrator, Thomas, is very eccentric. At times I got a Yosarian or even Raoul Duke vibe. Um, is my reading of this appropriate? Is your narrator eccentric? Yeah, he's a bit of a, so he thinks a lot of himself, right? And, um, and, and I'm, you know, I was happy to have that blurb. They, they, um, they got what I was trying to do, because like I said, I wanted to kind of increase the pace a little bit i use some just a different technique where i not every chapter ends with a little bow tied on it which is kind of how hard road south works which is okay and there's some cliffhangers in there too but in this case a lot of times a chapter will end in the middle of some action and so i just want to you know make it easy to keep on trucking through it but as far as thomas goes uh he's a bit of a rogue and i wasn't really sure where I was going with him until although it happened quickly he's trying to get off Cuba like I mentioned and he's down at, at the shore and sees a local fisherman with a boat aha an opportunity so he fancies himself a smooth talker but doesn't know too much Spanish so he pulls a gun on this guy and you know immediately I'm, I'm like oh oh this is a different kind of different kind of character different kind of book than what i'm used to I, I had written you know in hard road south there's some very good natured savory characters and uh thomas has got a little edge to him you know he's not afraid to cut some corners or uh bend the law here and there to to achieve his goals um so yeah in that sense um he's different than i am and a little more uh, eccentric i guess than some of the past characters i've written He's also he's he's a smart guy. He's you can tell as he's as he's talking. He's he's well read. He makes some pop culture references for his time in the late 1800s. Um, you know, he's pretty savvy in general and can pick up on other people and what they might want to hear. Right. Um, although there are limits, like I said, and every now and again, I've got to knock him down a peg or two because it doesn't always quite work like he wants it to.
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, and I want to ask you about uh, kind of plotting this type of story. There's lots of different plot structures that a writer can choose, of course, but um, when you think of novels like this one, um, and I think of, you know, maybe The Odyssey, maybe um, The Road by Cormac McCarthy, maybe more recently, um, A Thousand Crimes of Ming Sue by Tom Lin, when you have a character who starts from one place, has to travel to another place, and along the lines, they meet this person, and then this person, and then right. this person, this person, is that um, difficult to write, to keep the story moving in that way, or is the opportunity to introduce so many different characters something that helps you move the story along? Yeah, well, it's kind of a double-edged sword, and, you know, you mentioned the Odyssey, and and some readers have compared it to that. And that is not actually what I set out to do. I didn't, I love the Odyssey um, for all the stories it's inspired. And you named a few and, you know, um, Cold other NC authors, Cold Mountains there, a big fish, you know, is is in that family of, of novels inspired by the Odyssey. So now when I look back on it though, with the Odyssey in mind, like, oh yeah, there's some... <laughs> There's some similarities whether I meant to do it or not. But um, as far as a plot device, I had, you know, I had not written a journey novel before, but it I love maps. And um, I was working off a transcontinental railroad map for this book just to kind of check places. And like I'd said in the Cuba instance, figure out how he's going to get from one point to another. And uh so that helped kind of that sense of place and where I needed to move him. But then this other aspect that you mentioned, the characters that he meets along the way, a lot of times they can hinder or help him along this journey. So they can introduce some useful means of advancing the plot and advancing Thomas. Now, the hard part for me was, which I didn't anticipate going into it, was there's essentially a group of four main characters and they travel together. In, a, in an instance or two, but for the most part, they're grouped differently along the journey. Like he he'll, he meets one, they pick up another that the first one might leave. So, and then another one comes along. So this was constantly changing the group dynamic and how Thomas is interacting with those around them, which I, again, like I said, I didn't anticipate. So I kind of had, every time I brought somebody else in, I was like, okay, had a reset. And, you know, spend a few days figuring out because you know how it is. Like if you're in a group of people and somebody new comes in, it might kind of change the conversation or how you might, you know, carry yourself, whatever. So I, I kind of um, had to reset and and it, it worked out. And I think it made for some interesting interactions between everybody. But that's why I mentioned double edged sword. It was a it was a help in some instances, but then also was a bit of a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you are in good company, of course, being compared to the Odyssey. I say this is a huge uh, James Joyce nerd here. Um, but thank you, Scott. Um, because we are a podcast of a bookstore, um, I have to ask, what does a picture of Dorian Gray mean to this novel, Go on the Redeemer? So this is, um, so you mentioned this, Tom, I mentioned kind of the pop culture references right so this was a really popular book of the time and um it it was the way in which thomas kind of met his future wife uh because she was sitting in a park reading this book and he had just been discussing this book with folks at a at the pub so um 
that you know that's the main hook i was looking for something that people might be talking about the kind of if you want to read into it more i'll let readers kind of make their own draw their own conclusions about it but you know there's also the idea of um outward appearance and how we present ourselves versus the reality of things and if you want to unpack thomas's character a bit uh there's there's that a lot of that going on he he often puts it's rare that somebody meets the real thomas right or they might have to spend some time with him before they get to know the real Thomas. Usually he's either flat out pretending to be somebody he's not or not telling everything he knows in order to put on a better appearance. So yeah, you could make some, you could draw more meaning from that if you wanted to. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, thank you so much, Scott. And finally, uh, I want to ask you about train hopping. Uh, one of my favorite short works of nonfiction um, is Riding Towards Everywhere by William T. Bowman, which is about train hopping. Uh, what does the art of hopping trains mean to this book? Do people still hop trains? And have you ever hopped a train? Oh, wow. So I, um, I have not personally, at, but in this case, in Thomas's case, uh, in he loves horses. He's a horse guy. He wants to get a horse and ride that thing home. You know, he, he knows that at some point he's going to have to buy a ticket and take a train across, you know, part of the West to get to California. But in Texas, uh, he meets a character who's uh, Alanthus, who's kind of this mysterious mercenary type. And um, Alanthus kind of sets him straight. And he's like, in Texas, you take trains because Texas at the time had a really extensive network of rail. So it was far more efficient than riding a horse all over the place. Um, now they weren't buying tickets though. This guy, you know, hop trains and um, they actually meet a, a hobo of the day, which kind of, I used to, the, I used the opportunity like, okay, they got to jump on this train. Thomas has never done it before. And so I was curious myself. I'd never done it. I was kind of uh, interested in uh, what that lifestyle is like. So I introduced this hobo character and, um, you know, both Thomas and Atlantis don't quite treat him seriously because he's living that lifestyle and, you know, uses a bunch of the, he kind of introduces them to some of the jargon of the day and he's a chipper fellow, but um, is just a little bit naive maybe from their perspective. So it was, you know, I mean, it was something that was done more at that time, just in what I've, I've researched about it, you know, into the early 1900s it was uh fairly common there were obviously a lot of risks involved but at the time um trains moved for one trains moved slower than they do now so i think there was more opportunity for folks to travel like that um there was like i said it was a easy way to cover a lot of distance and for some people who didn't have the means to go buy a ticket it was right there like they could see the train open cars just let's let's do it <laughs> let's go where that train's going so um yeah that's it was one of those instances where i was interested in something and this is kind of like how the spanish-american war came into play too and the west for that matter at, at this transitional period I, I was interested in a topic and i saw an uh, opportunity to yes for one learn about it myself but also kind of hopefully share something with the reader and that's what i look to do in and why i like to write historical fiction i don't want to be too heavy-handed with it but i do want to be accurate in things like 
that instance or whatever a character might experience along the way. Uh, because yeah, hopefully readers can glean something from it and it might encourage them to go learn more about different different parts of history. So absolutely. And um for you or anyone else who's interested after reading your book, I do recommend that book, Writing Towards Everywhere. Um yeah. That was going to be my last question, but I do have one more for you. And this is stepping outside of the world of your novel, Scott. Um, we've talked about North Carolina, where, of course, uh, Quail Ridge Books is. You've mentioned um, our, our good friends, Charles Frazier and Daniel Wallace's books. Um, but the bookstore I'm sitting in right now is in Aspen, Colorado. And you used to uh, work and write in Colorado. Uh, what was the nature of your work here, Scott? In Colorado? So I, uh, my Career is in magazine journalism. So I moved to Colorado. I grew up in Alabama, moved to Colorado on a bit of a journey of my own. I had planned to go, this is ridiculous. I, I planned to go to California. <laughs> See, part of the reason I wanted to write Gone the Redeemer is because I knew I'd spent so much time in the West, right? So I wanted to kind of share some of that. Um, so I was planning on going to California didn't make it past the Rockies for a variety of reasons, but it worked out because I met my wife in Denver. So all is well. Um, I also went to school while I was there at CU Boulder and uh, worked for a time with Backpacker Magazine, which um, that was when they were with Rodale Press, but um, they had a map office in Boulder. They may, oh, now I think um, their main office may be in Boulder. But anyway, um, so I was, you know, doing a lot of hiking out there, writing about hiking. So that was a lot of fun. And uh, at the time, I wasn't doing any writing. I didn't start writing long form fiction until I moved to Virginia. But, um, you know, I was still managing to do some short essays and other creative work like that. I think mostly I was just kind of storing everything up, taking in the views and, and the history of that area so that I could use it later, like for something like On the Redeemer. So it's beautiful. Um, uh, but, you know, having grown up in the South, I did miss parts of the Southeast that I was happy to get back to. Some parts I didn't even realize I missed until I moved back. So, so yeah. You. Um, so your story is kind of like the story of Denver as a whole, right? Folks were kind of like traveling West and they saw the Rockies and they're like, I think we've gone far enough. This is where we're going to stop. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had a Honda Accord and I didn't know if it was going to make it over those things, but right. I do spend some time in Denver. There's a chapter or two in Denver uh, that's kind of, you know, an homage in that sense, because I had spent, I'd lived there for five years and it has a really great history on its own. Um, <clears throat> the character Thomas goes to the Coors Brewery, which has a great history and was some place that I would often take visitors. Uh, it's, it's an impressive operation and it's just beautiful. So yeah, I wanted to hit on all that and use it as an opportunity. I, I have friends out there in Denver still who have read the book and they have uh, an idea of some locations and where they might be in real life. And I hadn't even pieced all that together, but I was like, you're probably right. That sounds about right for where that little town might be or something like that. So yeah, it is rooted in some reality. Yeah, great. It's funny how the uh, subconscious works when you're writing things. Well, yeah, exactly. thank you, Scott. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for writing this book. I have to say this novel was a sort of a revelation to me, and I can't wait for our friends out there to get turned on to it. Listeners, I've been speaking with Scott Gates, author of Gone the Redeemer, which is published by our friends at Blue Ink Press. Scott, thank you so much for joining. 
Thanks for having me, Jason. I've really enjoyed it. Once again, I would like to thank Scott Gates for joining me. Copies of Gone the Redeemer can be ordered from www.explorebooksellers.com. I would also like to thank our sponsors, Quail Ridge Books and Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.